Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. The 2020 election is now in its final stages, as former Vice President Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris are now recognized as President-elect and Vice President-elect, respectively. In addition to the presidency, every seat in the House of Representatives and 35 Senate seats were up for re-election. While the results of every race are not yet final, at this time it appears that the Democrats will continue to have a majority in the House and the Republicans will have a temporary majority in the Senate pending a runoff election in Georgia for the state's two senators. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Anders Gilbert, MGMA Senior Vice President, Government Affairs, to get his insights on the results of the election, and more importantly, how a Biden-Harris presidency could impact healthcare in general and medical practices in particular. Anders, uh, can you introduce yourself and please describe how MGMA Government Affairs supports the MGMA members and their practices? Sure, thank you, Dave, and um, I'm happy to be here. I, it's been a really interesting <laughs> week or so post-election, and uh, we certainly are, are still sorting out some of the details with the election. But as you said, we have a Washington office. We have, we're based in Denver, Colorado, MGMA, but our Washington office serves as our base of operations as we advocate on behalf of medical practices and the leaders of those practices. We pursue policies that ensure that the medical group practice can remain as a viable delivery mechanism in our healthcare system to make sure that reimbursement is sufficient to deliver high quality care to patients and just to reduce the overall burden of regulations that uh, medical practices across the country face. And so anytime there's an election or a shift in, in the makeup of Congress or the presidency, you know, it has a significant impact. And, uh, you know, as I speak to medical practice leaders across the country, they viewed this election as one of the most important in a long time. You know, let's begin with an overview on the election. Uh, it's been just over a week since election day when we're recording this, and the results of most races are now known. Uh, most importantly, the vote count indicates that former Vice President Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be inaugurated as President and Vice President of the United States. Anders, what would you like to add about the election? I think that um, it's most important that we resolve some of the um, differences in terms of the the outcomes in some of the most important states. What we will have now over the next couple of weeks that I think will, uh, again, put a stamp on the certainty of the election is we will have the states um, certifying the election results. And once we get to that, it will be a little clearer in terms of the transition. The one thing I'd like to add is that in a presidential election year, we certainly look to the presidency. It is um, both symbolic and important for policymaking, but as I work on issues in Washington, with respect to where the most uh, dramatic change can often occur in the legislative arena, it is in those congressional um, elections. And as you mentioned, uh, we have a very tight Senate. So in terms of the impact on medical practices. I'm looking at the runoff election in Georgia. We're going to find out um, that election is going to take place on January 5th, I believe. And that will likely determine a large part of how we will approach our agenda next year. But um, oftentimes people forget that the, the executive branch itself 
doesn't have as much pure power in our democracy, but they do have considerable impact on the regulatory process. And what I've found over my years in representing MGMA in Washington, it's those rules and regulations that often have the greatest impact on the day-to-day -day operations of a medical practice. And that's where we, we see when the laws, the rubber hits the road with respect to implementing laws and where we often have the most impact and insight in terms of helping educate and shaping the, how these um, potential rules and regulations impact medical practices. So yes, you know, I think we'll see a lot of um, uh, positioning over the next couple of weeks, but as we look beyond that, I'm specifically looking at the Senate and I'm specifically going to be thinking about uh, how a new Biden administration would impact things on the regulatory front. Television commentators and online bloggers and radio talk show hosts have provided almost nonstop perspective on the election. However, few have commented on how healthcare is going to be affected. We know that Mr. Biden tied his platform to the Affordable Care Act, and he campaigned defending pre-existing condition protections and lifetime limit bans. Uh, he also ran on how the Affordable Care Act provided insurance coverage to 20 million Americans through state and federal insurance exchanges. The Supreme Court has just heard arguments on the legality of the Affordable Care Act. Anders, uh, we could talk on this one issue for hours. Uh, so do you want, can you give our listeners uh, your overview for what they can expect from the new administration re regarding the Affordable Care Act? Sure. And again, it's going to hinge largely on which party controls the United States Senate. Let me touch upon what uh, President-elect Biden, what he ran on. When candidates run for office, they have platforms and they're sort of aspirational uh, in nature. So we don't have a whole lot of details, but the general outline of the Affordable Care Act uh, in, in the Biden platform was supporting an expanded assistance, financial assistance to beneficiaries that um, potentially are covered above 400% of the federal poverty level. So it would be an expansion of some of the aspects of the Affordable Care Act. He also ran on a platform that supported reducing out-of-pocket cost sharing for beneficiaries under the Affordable Care Act. And it's a bit of a hybrid in terms of the expansion of the Affordable Care Act or if it's a standalone issue. Uh, most notably, his platform was to create a public option which would provide coverage for more Americans and have you know, a far, far-reaching, sweeping impact on our healthcare system. You know, I, as you mentioned, I would be remiss not to highlight the fact that um, a day ago, we had uh, arguments before the United States Supreme Court with respect to the Affordable Care Act. What the Trump administration, who opposed the Affordable Care Act and wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, you know, from an administrative standpoint and the regulatory standpoint, they pursued sort of a strategy of what often is referred to as a death by a thousand cuts. They couldn't just outright repeal it, but they could, they could eliminate little aspects of it. And so they went ahead and did that. In addition to sort of the regulatory disassembling of the Affordable Care Act, the big question is, is what will happen with the ACA? And will that indeed be determined totally unconstitutional in the middle of next year? And that will force everybody's hand. Everybody will have to do something about the Affordable Care Act. Or if it's a more uh, moderate um, approach uh, taken by the 
the Supreme Court, then we may see just more of an incremental approach to the Affordable Care Act, and, and that will again depend on the makeup of the Senate. And there are three basic things that they're looking at without getting into too much detail. The first thing that the court is going to consider is whether they're standing to challenge the individual mandate. And by standing, what we typically mean is that have plaintiffs been harmed by uh, the law in question. And so if the Supreme Court determines that, that there is standing, it moves on to a second question. And so that second question is, is the individual mandate constitutional? And so depending on if the court decides to take that step and determine the constitutionality of the Supreme or of the individual mandate, then if it determines that it is unconstitutional, the individual mandate, uh, and its current, in its current form, then they'll determine whether it's severable from the rest of the Affordable Care Act. And that's kind of the real question we're looking at. Now, severability is basically a question of congressional intent, but um, the determination of that severability will be critical. If simply that the individual mandate is deemed unconstitutional, it may have a rather modest impact on what happens in the Affordable Care Act in the next year. If the entire act is struck down by the United States Supreme Court, it will force the hand of Congress and Congress will have to do something. It usually when a Supreme Court makes a decision, it is immediately in effect. And so that could create a huge disruption to our healthcare system, regardless if you're for or against the Affordable Care Act. So those are the type of things we're looking at. And that's the environment we're looking at in 2021. You know, you mentioned how Vice President Biden has expressed support for creating a public option that would be accessible to virtually everyone with even those who had employer or Affordable Care Act or Medicaid coverage. He's also explained the public option is not a Medicare for all plan, but just a new insurance option. Can you give us more insight uh, into this concept of what is a public option and why it is not Medicare for all? People have defined Medicare for all in a lot of different ways. and But basically the the public option as envisioned in the Biden platform was that uh, to create more accessibility to this public option and it would include employers and the and and folks who are receiving uh, coverage under the Affordable Care Act on an exchange or even uh, individuals who may be receiving Medicaid coverage in a Medicaid expansion state that they could be shifted onto a public option it retains existing coverage options but it's not really you know, Medicare for all in the purest sense, replacing all other insurance for a, a nationalized health insurance plan. But, um, you know, the, the key thing that we would look at in terms of the impact on medical practices, and this is outlined in the Biden platform, is that under the public option as envisioned, the way that you would be able to implement such a thing and so that it wouldn't be as costly as it might sound is that it would allow the government to directly negotiate fees and rates with physicians and hospitals and medical practices. And that could be a sea change. That could be a serious issue for medical practices. We do surveys every year in terms of, you know, do the federal programs, the Medicare and Medicaid programs or the federal and state programs, do they cover the cost of delivering care? And oftentimes we see that for many services, these programs don't cover the overhead costs and the overall costs of actually delivering the services. Medical practices cross-subsidize those costs uh, with their commercial contracts. Now, if you brought the federal government into play in terms of uh, disrupting that, that relationship, 
you could see a significant impact and negative impact financially on medical practices. So it's something we would need to watch very carefully. It's not something that uh, the president can do unilaterally. It would have to be something done along with Congress. But again, it's that where would the federal government play in terms of negotiating rates that we will probably likely focus a great deal on if that indeed move forward as a, a legislative proposal. You mentioned also how Biden campaigned on changing Medicare, that he includes lowering the Medicare eligibility age to age 60 and adding some additional new benefits. Since Medicare is the largest payer for many of our MGMA medical practices, these changes could have a substantial impact. What are your thoughts and also what additional services is President-elect Biden considering wanting to put into Medicare? This is where, where sort of when I heard sort of Medicare for all over the last several years, I kind of, I think I might have the last time you and I spoke um, and did the podcast, I, I, I thought the most likely expansion of Medicare would be an attempt to reduce the age and have a, some type of buy-in. This is part of the platform. It's ambitious. It, uh, especially in the environment we're in right now, where we, the United States government has been spending an inordinate amount of money to um, make sure that we're keeping the economy afloat during a you know, once in a century pandemic. A proposal like this it is invariably going to be incredibly expensive. So what we saw in the Biden platform was a very popular idea of lowering the eligibility age to 60, but also adding vision, hearing, dental services. Um, you know, some of the ways that 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 might be paid for would be to negotiate uh, with the drug companies and again, as I mentioned, providers would also cap uh, drug prices and out-of-pocket uh, responsibility that beneficiaries would have for, for drug prices. But again, in this environment where you have the, both the Medicare and Social Security trust funds are not necessarily as healthy as they've been and you have the government running huge deficits and it's going to be very difficult from a financial perspective to actually implement these proposals. It, it's out there. It's being discussed. A lot of people support it. It has implications for medical practices, much like I, I mentioned um, with the public option, where you have more of a government role in setting rates, which could be negative for medical practices, but it's very popular. Uh, potentially could expand some, some access, so that could be a positive for providers, but we'll see. From a political standpoint, regardless of where the Senate ends up, even if you had a very razor-thin Democratic majority in the Senate, I think it's very difficult to, to move such ambitious legislation forward that would cost so much money in this environment. You know, we've talked about Medicare, the Biden-Harris administration on their platform has proposed a number of changes to Medicaid, even though Medicaid is predominantly a state-run program. Can you give us some insights on what some of their thinking is on changes in Medicaid and how these could potentially affect medical groups. You know, we traditionally look at, like you said, uh, Medicaid as a state-run program, but with the Affordable Care Act, it gave substantial federal support for uh, states to expand their Medicaid programs to cover beyond sort of the minimum levels of the federal poverty level. It's interesting what Biden had proposed, and again, it's gonna be very difficult to do something like this. Again, this money is not gonna be falling from the trees in 2021, but uh, so clearly he supports the existing Affordable Care Act expansions that, uh, that uh, many states have undertaken, um, but he would also 
as part of his platform, implement some type of plan to allow states with the Medicaid expansion to move, uh, conceptually move those beneficiaries, those expanded Medicaid beneficiaries into a public option. So kind of a hybrid of the Affordable Care Act, uh, some of the policies of the Affordable Care Act with some of these new aspects of the public option that he has proposed, but also providing, you know, another aspect that we're seeing is that states are in trouble financially with their Medicaid programs. We're seeing states that, you know, are really struggling. And again, what is the first thing that often happens when states struggle in their Medicaid programs? They don't cut benefits. They often cut reimbursement to providers. So I'm hearing from MGMA members about states and potentially cutting their Medicaid reimbursement. And that could be a really devastating for access to Medicaid beneficiaries in those states to medical practices, which are critical. So one of the other aspects of what President-elect Biden ran on was additional federal support to states during the economic crisis that we're in. So we'll see how it, it, um, it plays out. Again, it's highly dependent on Congress, very expensive, easy to say when you're running for office, but harder to implement when you have the Congressional Budget Office overseeing uh, proposals that would cost billions and billions of dollars. Back, we talk about cost. Uh, healthcare cost is another issue that both Republicans and Democrats have addressed. Uh, and during the campaign, uh, President-elect Biden proposed actions that, in order to reduce healthcare costs, of course, in some cases, a healthcare cost to the government is healthcare revenue to our members. So, Andres, can you give us some insight of what some of these proposals were? And do you think uh, that any of them could be implemented through executive order? or will they require congressional action? And if it requires congressional action, do you think even with a uh, Democratic Senate, which is at a tie, could they get enough votes to de- bring any of these in- these changes into law? Yeah, and it's not just uh, medical practices that are on the opposite side of these. You have device manufacturers, you have drug companies, so there's some powerful constituencies in Congress that would bear the brunt of um, if there were some uh, significant cost containment efforts in the in the Medicare program, for example. Maybe I'll highlight a few that that uh, were in the Biden platform. Interestingly, they were not that different than what uh, President Trump has talked about. The only difference is President Trump has had four years to do some of these things. He's included them in executive orders, but largely there has been I mean, I guess the one area that we have seen some movement is in terms of hospital price transparency, and there's been some regulations that are currently in the courts with respect to that. So there is, um, on the transparency front, there has been some things done by President Trump that um, that would potentially rein in healthcare costs. But um, with respect to Biden, you know, he, as I mentioned, supports government price negotiations with providers under the public plan, and that could prove problematic for medical practices. He supports lowering drug costs and government negotiations with respect to to, uh, drug manufacturers. Not unlike the Trump administration, he supports the implementation of alternative payment models, accountable care organizations and others, uh, other methods, uh, bundled payments, other ways to change from our fee-for-service system into one that, that encourages value over volume. You know, a couple things, again, President Trump supported the concept of ending surprise billing. There's been some proposals in Congress on a bipartisan nature, um, and President Biden has proposed that as a cost savings instrument. Most of those would need some additional support. Maybe the alternative payment model expansion, you would see 
Um, it was rather anemic in the prior administration or the current administration. Um, you might see more action on the, on the administrative front in terms of expanding alternative payment models. One of the key areas that we have talked a lot about over the last maybe five to 10 years is consolidation in our healthcare system. Whereas both uh, President Trump and President-elect Biden, you know, there's conceptual agreement on um, limiting uh, consolidation and supporting more antitrust enforcement of that consolidation. But the Trump administration really didn't do a whole lot in that area. They might dispute that. I would see a Democratic administration doing more with their Department of Justice and their Federal Trade Commission in that area. So we were, we're likely to see these more general attempts to rein in what would be considered potentially anti-competitive uh, behavior in a new administration. So it remains to be seen. It's politically very difficult to um, do some of these things. You know, we've talked about the election, but, you know, the federal government has made a number of other changes in Medicare payment policy that will go into effect in 2021, and there will affect almost every practice. I, I believe the most significant changes will be the new 2021 evaluation and management codes and the proposed changes to the Medicare fee schedule related to those codes. Can you give some of your insights and summarize what will happen to these evaluation management procedures and how payment levels for E&M codes will affect payments for all, all providers. Sure. And so this was a, a proposed rule both last year and one that's being finalized this year. There were bits and pieces in both the final physician fee schedules. And, uh, you know, on balance, the intent was pretty positive. And I would say this is something that, generally speaking, garnered a lot of support from in terms of the reduction in administrative burden. And so obviously one of the things that physicians often you know, complain about most and rightfully so is the crushing burden of documentation in this country for such things as E&M services. And so when they provide an outpatient office visit, um, there's significant documentation that they're often doing late at night uh, after a full day of seeing patients. And so the changes implemented to the modernization of the evaluation management codes. I think most constituents as well as MGMA see that as positive documentation aspects. But the the flip side to that is that when you there were some reevaluations of the the relative values of those codes and as a result of some of the additional the redefining the codes uh, by the uh, CPT editorial panel and the Relative Value Update Committee of the American Medical Association. And as those refinements were put into place by CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they would, for a large part, increase E&M codes. And so, you know, arguably E&M codes, and a lot of people believe, you know, that physicians who do a lot of E&M codes are largely underpaid relative to proceduralists. And um, so both the modernization on the documentation side, as well as the um, uh, changes to the RVUs, uh, that would increase the E&M code values for 2021. So if primary care specialty, a family physician, you're likely to see some, a decent bump increase under Medicare as a result. But one of the features of Medicare, unless there are new money uh, new money is allocated to um, funding a change to the physician fee schedule is, is budget neutrality. So, you know, um, if there is a change of this magnitude, then budget neutrality uh, rules and requirements 
kick into effect. And so you have to take money from other codes to give money, in this case, to the E&M codes. That could be very damaging in the midst of a pandemic to specialties such as surgery uh, and, and others that do a lot more procedure than evaluation and management. So we'll see what the final implications are in the fee schedule, which we expect out any day now for 2021. But there are already efforts underway that MGMA and others are supporting to mitigate the impact of that budget neutrality adjuster. And that's, that's something that we're looking for in the lame duck Congress um, that's likely you know going to start soon, um, but would be legislation to nullify the impact of the budget neutrality adjuster, so we can both get the benefits of the increases to the evaluation and management codes and the reduction in the overall burden, as well as nullify that negative impact on those specialties that have been hurt very bad in this pandemic, whose volumes are down, their patient volumes are down, their revenues are down. And again, they can't take another 10% hit in their Medicare or the Medicare payments in 2021. So that's kind of where we stand now, something that we're focusing on a great deal at MGMA. And we're working with a number of specialties and uh, hoping to see Congress take action to mitigate what could be a really big problem right off the bat in January of, of 2021. Yeah. And in fact, you mentioned COVID-19 and what has happened with the pandemic in the, in the context of physician services. Now, it's also had a major impact as more and more practices have expanded their telemedicine activities and services. And currently, Medicare reimburses telemedicine at the same value as it was an in-person visit. But I know many healthcare leaders are concerned this policy may change. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of telemedicine? And do you believe CMS will continue to support equal payment for telemedicine services? Yeah, to the last point, I don't think that CMS will continue beyond the public health emergency to cover telemedicine at the exact same uh, level that um, an office visit would be reimbursed. Uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, there was, first of all, limited telehealth coverage, as well as reimbursement that was, you know, approximately 30% below what an inpatient office visit would receive. The concept behind that, which could easily be disputed in terms of the resources that go into telemedicine, the concept was that it costs less to deliver something in a, in a virtual setting than a, in, a, in you know, an actual physical setting. And that obviously for those of our members who have had to invest in HIPAA compliant telemedicine platforms, they know that it costs money to deliver telemedicine. So it's not, you know, as simple as that. There's also like a, there's just a general concern. And so before the public health emergency, Medicare, for example, didn't even cover telehealth, telemedicine outside rural areas. And so there was a, what we call a geographic site restriction. So there very, very limited telemedicine. I believe in 2016, only a quarter of 1% of, of all overall uh, services were delivered in Medicare via telemedicine. But of course, with the expansion of telemedicine under the public health emergency and the, par the payment parity that you mentioned with, with offices, it's, that has changed. So there had been legislation in Congress to expand uh, telemedicine beyond rural areas, but that didn't go anywhere. And so why didn't it go anywhere? Uh, there is a fear, and this was legislation that MGMA supported, so I'm going to tell you what we heard on the opposite side. There was a fear of a couple things. One, that it would um, drive up Medicare volume without a commensurate increase in quality. And um, it would be seen, it was scored at, by the Congressional Budget Office as a fairly costly piece of legislation. So the cost is really critical to expanding telemedicine post-pandemic. Um, there was also concern about fraud. 
And then there was concern about the HIPAA issues and the privacy and confidentiality and security issues that come along here. So right now under the public health emergency, we have all kinds of waivers in place that would allow um, a doctor sitting in their home, go on FaceTime with their patient sitting in their home. And, but that's not a HIPAA compliant platform and that was never going to um, be allowed prior to the public health emergency. That was put in place as a result. So I see some of that scaled back, but my guess is the most likely outcome is that Congress will pass some legislation expanding telemedicine beyond the rural setting. We will then probably have it time limited so we can study these aspects of would it increase you know, fraud, would it increase volume unnecessarily without a quality uh, uh, increase as well, and would there be, you know, potential issues with hackers and others um, uh, with respect to privacy. Study that for a couple of years, see if there is a, is, is a legitimate concern in any of those areas, and then seek to potentially um, create some permanent laws around it. So, you know, much like everything with Congress, it's never simple, but um, I mean, there's a lot of positive vibes around telemedicine right now, but again, money is not gonna fall from trees in 2021. It will cost money to continue the expansion outside the public health emergency, so we will see. Another way that Congress and uh, its Medicare Payment Advisory Commission have looked at reducing cost has been to eliminate pay differentials across outpatient sites and essentially limiting the facility fees and paying for all professional services under a single Medicare physician fee schedule. you know, they've also uh, recommended expanding the type of services that can be formed, be performed in a non-facility setting. I know this issue is one of real interest to our uh, MGMA members who are part of health systems. Mm-hmm. Can you give us your observations on these issues? And do you think uh, these proposals could be implemented in 2021? Notwithstanding, you know, some of our policy concerns about site neutrality, you know, I I thought that this would be implemented years ago, but it hasn't. But there's been incremental moves uh, with respect to the administration in trying to, for, let's say, hospital outpatient departments who are providing services in an off-campus setting, that those payment rates are equal to those that are being delivered in an independent medical practice across the street. And so clearly there are issues, so there are two sides to this issue and I'll just outline them briefly. So from the the independent medical practice side, they view it as it provides a preferential payment. It drives up costs for beneficiaries by paying a hospital more to deliver basically the exact same service Um, because of that it was delivered in a hospital or outpatient setting as opposed to a a medical office. And so from a cost containment standpoint, that's probably the strongest argument of equalizing it. Now the hospitals will say that, look, I mean, look at this pandemic. We are a safety net provider. You know, we're forced to basically accept Medicare, Medicaid, all comers. We have MTALA regulations that require us to stabilize patients. And so we need a little extra money in order to subsidize some of these things that we provide as a health system in our community. Well, my sense is the way this is going to ultimately be resolved is is that potentially somewhere in the middle where that the payments will ideally be equalized across both settings so you know a physician doing a service in a doctor's office will receive the same um, payment as the physician doing it in an outpatient setting of a hospital when you combine the professional fee and the uh, and the facility fee so there would be no difference in terms of the impact on patients 
and it wouldn't be an aberration in terms of the marketplace for the delivery of the exact same service where quality and everything is exactly the same. However, we may need to also look at, you know, what subsidization do we need to provide hospitals in order to provide those safety net services? But should it be done within the Medicare physician fee schedule? Probably not, that we could look elsewhere as we look to, to level the playing field between medical practices and outpatient departments. It's very tricky. MGMA has members on both sides, and they both have um, very legitimate arguments. And um, you know, our longstanding policy, again, in the, just so I don't confuse everybody as I go through these options, is that all things being equal, there should not be a difference in payment based on site of service. It's just a question of, do we need to provide any more support for these hospital-based settings um, for some of these other services that they provide? It probably shouldn't be subsidized you know, within a single physician fee schedule, as you mentioned. Our academic practices, you know, that they've, they've for years had a separate subsidy for their teaching mission because right. that's recognized as having additional costs. Mm -hmm. So I think there are ways that you could uh, provide subsidies to the safety net providers and those institutions who provide a public service by their availability. That's right. Um, you, know, you know, also, in, let, maybe we should also look the future. Uh, right now, you know, we have a, an existential threat of COVID-19 pandemic that's affecting healthcare, it's affecting all of America. And we're seeing record numbers of COVID-19 cases and many of our existing healthcare resources are just being stretched to the limit. Fortunately, we've also had some positive news on development of, of possible vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, President-elect Biden has proposed a national plan to coordinate actions to eliminate the disease. Uh, can you give our listeners some of your perspective on you know, what can the federal government do to help physicians and their practices during the pandemic? Yeah, I kind of, you know, you break it up into many different ways and, you know, you only have to flip on the news to kind of see how quickly this is evolving. But first and foremost, um, what we hear from MGMA members is that they simply need to protect their physicians, their nurses, their clinical staff, as well as their administrative staff in the office. And so, you know, the whole issue of the availability of PPE, you know, masks and gowns and gloves is still critical. It's still, there are still shortages out there. So it's critical that we get, you know, masks and gowns and all of that to providers. The other thing, and medical practices, the other thing that medical practices are now struggling though with is that the cost of that PPE has skyrocketed during the pandemic. So you have access to PPE that the federal government can help with, but we're also, uh, we just, MGMA just sent a letter to Medicare, as well as some of the major payers in this country, um, about a new code that was developed by uh, the AMA, a new CPT code that, that um, would be an add-on code for the additional expenses for PPE. And so we're urging both Medicare and private payers to uh, pay for that code during the public health emergency to help offset the costs. So that is something that can be very concrete that the federal government can do in that respect to help medical practices both find PPE as well as um, to pay for it. Uh, with respect to, to you know, what we're gonna see in 2021, you know, it's fantastic news that we heard from Pfizer in terms of the efficacy of the, of the, um, uh, the vaccine that they've been testing. But you know, it sounds like we're still a little ways off. You know, I'm no expert in you know, vaccines or anything like that, but you know, we will have medical practices 
asking and trying to be very helpful in the distribution of vaccines. You know, there are, there are going to be costs that the federal government will have to help offset um, if medical practices um, are gonna be part of that distribution process. My understanding with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, is that you know, it has to be, it's a two-dose vaccine. There has to be uh, significant um, refrigeration, deep, deep, deep freezers necessary. So um, these are all costs that, you know, some medical practices may not be able to bear on their own, but it's so critical that we get that vaccine out when it is ready to be distributed. And we think that medical practices can play a really important role in that. So, you know, we need to keep them viable. We need to keep their providers safe in this environment. Um, and then we also have to, um, you know, bring them under the fold and they can be critical arm of of, of implementing a national strategy to make sure we're all safe and vaccinated and we can get beyond this, you know, incredibly trying time for our country. I agree completely. In fact, an, another element I've had numerous conversations with uh, practice leaders, and that is a new round of economic stimulus payments. Um, mm -hmm. The economic stimulus, the PPP that was provided last spring, helped many practices to retain staff and keep staff on payroll when they had a significant decrease in patient volume. So I think this is another opportunity where the federal government can come to assist practices, large and small, because they all have, are seeing a significant shift in their economic status because of loss of patient volume and increased costs. Yeah, no, and, and so, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, the Provider Relief Fund, uh, those were two significant financial resources that medical practices could tap into, especially back in April of this year. I expect to be, there will be some additional potential, but more modest uh, infusions into those, those type of programs. But as, as you well know, there is disagreement on the scope between the Democrats and Republicans of such a plan. Uh, it's still a possibility in this lame duck session that we may see some type of economic stimulus plan that would include some either direct payments or indirect type of support for medical practices. So it remains to be seen. But yeah, I mean, what's scary to me is that, you know, we said this all summer long as we were talking to both external audiences and both with our members is that, you know, we hopefully had learned a lesson back in, in April, May, June of this year um, that we did not want to relive uh, going into the fall and winter of, of the same year. And um, it's very unfortunate. You know, I think yesterday I saw in the news that we've now hit um, um, 62,000, I believe, uh, hospitalizations in this country due to COVID. And it, that's as high as it's ever been. So again, once again, providers are going to be there's going to be a lot of scared patients who are going to be reluctant to go to their doctor for fear of being exposed to COVID. Um, that reduces the volume of patients to, to practices for things that they legitimately probably should be going in, such as managing chronic conditions and, and you know, making sure that preventive care is being, is being undertaken on their behalf for non-COVID services. And so as those volumes go down, potentially again this fall, we may need to provide additional support. And MGMA has been there for our members during the first round. We've asked for additional monies to go into the Provider Relief Fund. We're asking, as I mentioned, for additional 
payments for such um, this new code that, that has been developed to cover um, PPE and other costs as a result of the pandemic. And so the federal government can play an important role in stabilizing things for medical practices. And I'll just add that the other thing that we're pursuing is that because of the fact that medical practices have received have, had received that lifeline back in April um, from these federal programs, there are a significant burden and strings attached to the reporting requirements and, um, for example, under the Paycheck Protection Program, the loan uh, relief and forgiveness requirements as well as just the, the amount of paperwork that might be needed to just keep the money that was provided practices um, without question under the provider relief fund. And so one of the things that MGMA will continue to do in representing medical practices is make sure that the burden of that documentation and all of the, the red tape that the government could put into place is at the absolute minimum. So again, you can focus on taking care of patients and not dealing with red tape and government paperwork. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, we've, we could continue to talk for much, much longer, but I know your time is limited. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add to our discussion today? Well, I would just, again, reiterate that uh, the way that we are able to work in concert with MGMA members, it, it, it provides us with the ability to advocate on their behalf. And uh, we spend every day, every week, talking to members, listening to their concerns, and then taking those concerns and turning around, translating them to lawmakers, and you know, making, making their lives better so they can, again, deliver uh, high quality care to their patients. They don't wanna deal with many of these government issues, and we understand that. So it's our job, in many cases, to get the, you know, when the government is needed, like in the midst of a, a once in a century pandemic, we can lever, we can pull that government lever, but a lot of times the government can also be an impediment within medical practice and interfere with the, you know, either clinical decision making of, of doctors or providing tons of red tape for medical practices. So we work to create an important balance for medical practice leaders as they manage what is an increasingly complex healthcare delivery model in an integrated medical group practice. And so we're going to continue to represent them in Washington, and we appreciate um, the support that they provide MGMA. Anders, thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners will find our discussion most, most interesting. Thank you, Dave.